What is the No Spin News all about? You know that this is a fact-based analysis news program. You know that. We avoid speculation. We don't do conspiracies here. We don't do party politics here. We're not nonpartisan. That's wrong. Not that. Okay, we are advocates for a stronger America and a more just society. We don't believe in communism. We don't believe in socialism. We don't believe in nihilism. We don't believe in the progressive woke culture. We think it is un-American. We don't support that. So you should know what we are. And it would then crystallize what we do. Listen to the No Spin News. Subscribe to Bill O'Reilly's podcast feed wherever podcasts are available. I'm Josh Hammer, and this is America on Trial. What an absolutely crazy week it has been in these United States from a legal perspective. Absolutely bonkers, unprecedented times, truly, that we are living through right now. Let's go ahead and dive right in and go around the horn. On Thursday, House Republicans released the transcript of Hunter Biden's closed-door deposition. He was up on Capitol Hill on Wednesday for a closed-door deposition in front of Congressman Comer's House Oversight Committee and Congressman Jim Jordan's House Judiciary Committee. And we have now seen the transcript. We've had a chance to parse through it just a little bit here. Hunter is very defensive, this is what stands out to me in the transcript. Very defensive about insinuations that he and his family are corrupt, the Biden crime family. He is very defensive in particular about the notion that the quote-unquote big guy, that being Joe Biden, was actually involved here. And, you know, he has some excuses when it comes to that infamous WhatsApp message where he was threatening someone over in China, his Chinese counterpart, whereas he was saying that he was standing right next to the big guy. And, oh, man, you don't want to tick him off because God knows what will happen to you. I mean, infamous stuff there, truly horrible. Hunter basically admitted, he said that that was the text message that he sent in his life, if he even sent it. So he says that he regrets the most. The actual message was, quote, I am sitting here with my father and we would like to understand why the commitment made has not been fulfilled. Tell the director that I would like to resolve this now before it gets out of hand. And now means tonight. That's what he texted his Chinese counterpart back in July 2017. So a lot of excuse making here from Hunter Biden. He obviously is a total prodigal profligate man. He is someone of many vices and very few redeeming virtues. He himself is under federal prosecution in multiple jurisdictions, both in Delaware and California. Hasn't been a whole lot of movement on those cases. Certainly when there is some movement on those cases, we will go ahead and dive right in here and explain it all to you here on America on Trial. But for now, I think it remains a fairly safe assumption that House Republicans probably just don't have the votes, for better or for worse, when it comes to impeaching Joe Biden. I'm not sure. I really just am not sure that this got them across the finish line, what they were trying to accomplish here with this hearing and with James Biden, Joe Biden's brother, who did the exact same thing last week. Today is also a huge day when it comes to the Trump legal drama. So as we discussed previously on the show, Illinois this week became the third state to boot Donald Trump off of the ballot on 14th Amendment Section 3 insurrection clause grounds. But they stayed their own ruling in anticipation of what's probably going to drop 
any minute now, any minute or any hour now today, on Friday, March 1st, we are anticipating the U.S. Supreme Court to issue its opinion when it comes to the Trump versus Anderson case, the appeal out of Colorado on the question of ballot access and so-called insurrection. The reason why we think it's going to come today is because, well, Friday is customarily a day where these sorts of things drop. But also, more important to the point, Colorado is a Super Tuesday state. Their primary is on Tuesday. And the literal facts, the appeal comes from Colorado, so they have to figure this thing out. So that's probably going to come down today. We will have a full recap and analysis for you on Monday on America on Trial right here on our show. As we've analyzed numerous times, we are predicting an 8-1 to or 9-0 to opinion, probably written on the, on the grounds of self-execution, namely the idea that Congress did not pass a statute explaining exactly how the insurrection clause is supposed to be operationalized. It is not self-executing. This is getting into the whole idea of a patchwork system, the kind of notion that John Roberts, the Chief Justice, the very mercurial and highly capricious Chief Justice, he's going to be very sympathetic to this kind of argument. The idea that you can't just have state administrators, state judges, city council folks, whoever across the country saying, oh, the president's disqualified on insurrection. That's a recipe for total and complete chaos. That is exactly the kind of argument that would probably appeal to the Chief Justice, and that is the argument that I do predict is going to go and carry the day. Now, this was also a bombshell week at the U.S. Supreme Court for the immunity question. They have agreed to hear it. They're hearing the oral argument on a rushed timeline. They're going to hear the oral argument on the Jack Smith D.C. election case, specifically the immunity question that is going to be held, that oral argument, in late April for a late June opinion. Now, the million-dollar question right now is— Let's say that even if it's the worst, even if it's the worst case scenario for Trump, even if they go ahead and just deny immunity and therefore Judge Chuck and the district court can quote unquote start her trial, I'm not exactly anticipating that. If I were a betting man right now, I would bet they probably will go ahead and do some sort of middle ground. Oh, some core Article Two, some core presidential powers do have immunity for after a sitting president is no longer a sitting president. But then there actually are some other things that you can do in office that really have nothing whatsoever to do with your core Article II constitutional presidential prerogative. And therefore, you actually can be prosecuted on some of those grounds after you leave the Oval Office, after you leave the Resolute Desk in the West Wing behind you. And if they do go ahead and do that route, then what they would do is probably remand it to lower courts to engage in fact-finding to see whether the actual conduct alleged by Jack Smith in this indictment is under the ambit of core functions that would be criminally immune for Donald Trump or not core functions. So is it official conduct or political conduct? We've seen this distinction play out in numerous occasions, including Mark Meadows' attempts down in Georgia to try to move his case there into federal court. That's this whole argument as to whether these actions— when it comes to the events between the 2020 election and January 6, 2021, are they official actions or are they not official actions? I, I anticipate the court is going to try to take that middle ground approach there. But the real debate now unfolding is, are they going to be able to get this trial in, in on time, even at this point, if they just simply swat down immunity and say the trial can proceed? So that will be the end of June. So you're looking now July 1st, right around there. At that point, you're probably not looking until a tri an actual trial start date until September. Until September, 
given all the the flurry of pretrial motions, all the discovery requests, things like that, that will only kick into gear after the Supreme Court has resolved the immunity question. And then the million-dollar question at that point is, recall that there was a longstanding Department of Justice policy against any perception whatsoever. This policy is in favor of avoiding any perception whatsoever of election interference. Going back to the summer of 2016, James Comey, when he fabricated that legal standard with Hillary Clinton, with the, with the emails, the 33,000 emails, he did that in the middle of the summer. It was early July, right around there, late June, early July, because he didn't dare want to get particularly close to the presidential election. Will, will Jack Smith feel like he is guided by the same guidelines here, the same parameters? I, I say no, because the era of Trump has thrown out all the norms on the left due to serial Trump derangement syndrome. But these are just the kind of things that we're going to be thinking and talking a lot about here on this show over the next few months. Make no mistake. Have no doubt about it. The D.C. prosecution, the Jack Smith federal prosecution in D.C. is the crown jewel. That is the crown jewel of the Biden regime of the Democrat lawfare complex right now. They are putting all, all of their eggs in that basket. And one of the reasons why they are putting all of their eggs in that basket is because the case in Georgia is just totally collapsing. The case in Georgia, which was the case that so many of us thought, really, I, I mean, I'm very much among them. I really thought that that was going to be the case, that Trump was by far in biggest doo-doo. But today, today on March 1st, we are going to get Another hearing down in Judge Scott McAfee's courtroom in Fulton County, Georgia, as it pertains to Trump co-defendant Michael Roman's motion to disqualify DA Fonnie Willis and Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade. Recall from last Friday, just one week ago, we had the court filing of this investigator with the geolocation data that Trump and his co-defendants, their lawyers, had retained. Really damning stuff, showing that Fonnie and Nathan were absolutely shacking up. They had thousands and that, that many thousands, I think over 10,000 text messages and phone calls combined, according to this investigator's geolocation data analysis. This happening all over the course of the year 2021, even before Fonnie Willis formally launched her investigation into Donald Trump and his co-defendants in November 2021. All of that is to say that Fonnie and Nathan were doing the deed, so to speak, well prior to Fonnie retaining Nathan to the tune of $650,000. Really curious to see what else we learn in today's hearing down in Fulton County, Georgia. I just don't know how this thing can possibly proceed in Fulton County, Georgia. I, I think you're going to end up seeing it moved out of Fulton County. It was already set for a delayed August start date there. It's probably going to get delayed even more. If it actually is moved out of Fulton County, the jury pool is only going to get redder. It's only going to get less dark blue because Fulton County is Atlanta. Trump is just looking extraordinarily lucky. Now, there's still a chance he could be tripped up in D.C. when it comes to the immunity question, but all in all, you've got to be happy right now looking at all these factors if you are Donald Trump. I'm Mike Slater from the podcast Politics by Faith. This is a crazy time in our country. It's stressful, a lot of anxiety, and it's going to get worse. And I realized that one of the things that helps me take away the stress is realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. So on this podcast, we take the news of the day and we run it through the Bible and other periods in history to realize that we've been through this before and we can rise above again. Politics by Faith, anywhere you listen to the podcast. Politics by Faith. The media has systematically lied to you. 
The Hunter Biden laptop story, the origin of COVID-19, the Trump-Russia collusion hoax, or how your money's being spent in Ukraine. Enough already with the lies. No more lies, hard truths only. That's what the Truth Podcast is all about. It's not standard conservative talking points. If you want that, go somewhere else. But if you want the hard truth delivered to you in a way that challenges you and will challenge me intellectually, you're not going to find anything like this on the internet. Subscribe, download now the truth. Now, for today's deep dive, I want to take us back to the immigration issue and the state of Texas. This is a topic that we have discussed on this show before. You had a rogue federal judge, Judge Ezra, who on Thursday blocked a Texas law that would allow state and local police officers to arrest migrants who cross over from Mexico illegally. So this was Judge David Ezra of the Western District of Texas. He sided with the federal government in this high-profile legal showdown. And it's a whopper of, a, of an opinion, 114 pages. Absolute garbage. Absolute unequivocal garbage. Total botching and misunderstanding of federalism. Total botching and misunderstanding of the very nature of the Article Six Supremacy Clause. What is, quote-unquote, nullification and what is not Judge Ezra apparently needs to go back to law school, or at a bare minimum, he needs to crack open a constitutional law 101 hornbook. In any event, here is one of the key quotes of this absolute just abortion, frankly, of, a, of an egregious opinion from Judge David Ezra. Here's a key quote, quote, No matter how emphatic Texas's criticism of the federal government's handling of immigration on the border may be to some, Disagreement with the federal government's immigration policy does not justify a violation of the Supremacy Clause. Okay, let's explain what the Supremacy Clause is and what it is not. The Supremacy Clause of Article 6 of the United States Constitution very clearly says that the Constitution, statutes passed by the Congress, and treaties, of course, international treaties ratified by the Senate, that is the supreme law of the land. What that means is when there is direct countervailing legislation at the federal and the state level. Put another way, if state law acts to undermine and sap the vitality, perhaps it is directly at loggerheads with federal law, then federal law has to triumph. That is a truism of federalism. That is the supremacy clause. That is not what is going on here. Do you know why? Because no one's undermining anyone else. The Texas law in question that would allow state and local police officers to arrest illegal aliens is not only not undermining or sapping the vitality of federal law, it is entirely complementary and 1,000% supportive of it because illegal entry into this country is a crime. It is a crime under federal law. So how in the world is it violative of the Supremacy Clause for Texas to aid the federal government's enforcement of its own purported law. That's not how it works. More generally speaking, the notion that Texas cannot do anything whatsoever when it comes to immigration enforcement and that they are wholly reliant on the federal government and in this case the dereliction of duty, the serial derelictions of duty from the Biden administration, the notion that they are entirely reliant upon them and can't do anything themselves is absolutely, positively garbage. 
In America, we have a system of dual spheres of sovereignty. The federal government and the state governments are both sovereign within their own legitimate spheres of influence. If sovereignty means anything, it entails the right to control who is in your space and the right to exclude. The states literally created the federal government. Go back and review what happened at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787. That's what happened. I want to quote the concluding paragraph of Justice Antonin Scalia's blistering concurrence slash dissent, really a dissent, in the 2012 case of Arizona versus United States because it is directly apropos here, directly on point. This is back when the illegal alien crisis was centered primarily around Arizona. Nowadays, it's primarily in Texas, but Arizona still gets hit as well. I digress. Here is Justice Scalia writing in Arizona versus U.S. Quote, Arizona has moved to protect its sovereignty, not in contradiction of federal law, but in complete compliance with it. The laws under challenge here do not extend or revise federal immigration restrictions, but merely enforce those restrictions more effectively. If securing its territory in this fashion is not within the power of Arizona, we should cease referring to it as a sovereign state. Go ahead and just replace Arizona with Texas in that paragraph, and you basically have the case at hand here. Texas has every right in the world to secure its territory. It has every right in the world to exercise the most rudimentary, basic, prosaic, principles and enforcement of what it means to be a sovereign entity. Again, per Scalia, unless we are going to just stop referring to Arizona and Texas as sovereign entities. This has nothing whatsoever, nothing to do with the supremacy clause. It has everything to do with the fact that the states are no less sovereign in their own legitimate spheres of influence than the federal government is in its own legitimate sphere of influence. And these states are unequivocally 100% sovereign when it comes to keeping out illegal aliens, especially when the manner in which it is done is exclusively supportive and in no way whatsoever violative of or undermining the federal government's own concurrent authority and concurrent prerogative to do much the same. An absolutely horrific opinion by Judge David Ezra when it comes to Texas and immigration. The silver lining, the solace here, is that the Fifth Circuit, the conservative-leaning federal appellate court there in Texas, the court that I clerked on many moons ago, they will probably, depending on the panel, will probably reverse this horrible opinion from Judge David Ezra. Have a great weekend, everyone. We will be right back with more America on Trial Monday morning. 